Good morning. I am excited to be able to look at this passage of Scripture together with you this morning. It's an amazing passage. I want to invite you to turn there with me now. It's Romans chapter 4. If you do not have uh, your own Bible with you, then you may want to use uh, one of the pew Bibles located in that little pocket in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you're using that, uh, you can find our passage on page uh, 941. 941. Romans chapter 4, now the actual content that we're looking at begins in verse 17, but it's hard to pick up in the middle of a sentence, so we're going to go back and start reading at verse 13. Romans 4, verse 13, when you have found your place, if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Here is what God's Word says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And verse 14 is going to tell us what the problem is with thinking that the inheritance comes through the law. He says, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And notice there we have the last part of verse 16, the first part of verse 17. Paul is making an important part, an important point about who is included in the inheritance, but it also kind of interrupts his sentence. So, so we can follow the flow of thought. Let me go back and read verse 16 without the interruption. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, middle of verse 17, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That is, he believed against the the ordinary expectations of what people would think that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray before we look at these words together. Father, we ask that your Spirit would work powerfully in our hearts by the teaching of your word this morning, would you cause us to grow in our love for the gospel? Would you cause us to grow in our joy? Would you cause us to grow in our ability to worship you? Would you magnify the work of your son in our midst this morning? We pray it all in his name for his sake. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. I want to begin by asking a question, and that is, are you a joyful Christian? In other words, do you regularly experience joy that comes from knowing you are loved by God and accepted in Christ? And how strong... Or how sturdy is that joy? What does it take to shake your joy or to steal your joy from you? Some of you, if you thought for a moment and answered as honestly as you could, you might say, I don't know if I'm really a very joyful person. I have a number of struggles in my life. I deal with competing emotions and attitudes and problems that often feel bigger than my joy. And some of you might say, I do experience joy in my life and in my walk with the Lord, but it tends to be up and down. I can be joyful one moment or one day, but then all it takes is one little frustration. Someone perhaps makes a comment that rubs me the wrong way, and it seems as if my joy is instantly gone. It evaporates. It is inconsistent. And the reason I ask these questions is because what we're going to talk about today has everything to do with your joy. We're going to talk a little bit about a man who lived and died about 4,000 years ago. And some people would say, that's ancient history. What does that have to do with me? But the truth is, what we learn in Scripture from the life of Abraham has everything to do with your joy. And we're going to talk more about a man who lived and died and came back to life about 2,000 years ago And even more than Abraham, what Jesus did, what he accomplished by his death and resurrection, has everything to do with your joy. And we're going to talk some about a theological word called justification. And some people might say, that's theology, that's dry doctrine, that's more likely to put me to sleep than it is to do anything else. But the truth is that justification has everything to do both with your eternal joy in the new heavens and the new earth and 
in the middle of your sufferings and your trials that you experience right here, right now. So that's a good place for us to start. What does the Bible mean? And especially, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he talks about justification? And why is it so important? Why does he give so much attention to this topic? Well, the Bible makes it clear, and there is something in your conscience as well that warns you this is true. The day is coming when we are all going to give an account to God. The date and time have been set for your trial before the judge of all the earth. And there are only two possible outcomes. His verdict will either declare you innocent or guilty. You will either be acquitted or you will be convicted. You will either be justified or you will be condemned. That word justify is a legal term. It's talking about a verdict pronounced in a court of law. The word is used this way both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what Paul is talking about in this whole section of the book of Romans. How can we receive a favorable verdict? How can man be found righteous? How can we be justified in the sight of God? And his answer is very clear. It's very logical, and it's very emphatic. First, we are not justified by our own works. We are not justified by keeping God's law. The only way we can be justified, because we are in fact sinners, is by God counting the work of someone else in our favor. We receive that by faith, because it's given to us as a gift. That's the essential point that Paul is making in the first few chapters of Romans. In chapter 4, he is basically proving that point by establishing a connection between us and Abraham. So Abraham is this central historical figure in the book of Genesis. He is chosen by God to be an instrument of blessing to the world through the offspring that God promised him and his wife Sarah. And the problem is, you remember that uh, he and his wife Sarah grow old, way past the age of childbearing, without having any children. But finally, by God's miraculous power, Sarah conceives and gives birth to a son, Isaac. Then Isaac will have Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons will become the nation of Israel. Well, it all starts with God's promise to Abraham. And Paul says, let's go back and look at the original documents. How does the book of Genesis say... Abraham found his right standing with God. He quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then Paul presses it a little further and he asks, when did this happen? Did it happen after he was circumcised? After he became a good observant Jew? No, it was before he was circumcised. So circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that he received by faith, but it played no part in him actually receiving that righteousness. The righteousness given to Abraham was achieved by someone else, and Abraham received it by faith, by believing God's promise. And what we're trying to do today is look at the Apostle Paul's explanation of how this works. How does believing God result in Abraham or us 
receiving God's righteousness as a gift. And then what happens as a result of our justification? Once we have received that gift, do we check off a box and say, that's taken care of, now I go back to continuing my life pretty much the way it was before? So to answer those questions, we need to follow certain connections that Paul makes for us in this passage. And there's probably more than three, but there are at least three I want us to see this morning. The first connection is one I've already referred to, and that is the connection between Abraham and us. Abraham's faith is the pattern for our faith, which leads to justification. So I want us to pay attention to how Paul describes Abraham's faith in these verses. First of all, Abraham puts his faith in the right place. He puts his faith in the right place. And that's important. Because there's no power in faith if you put your faith in the wrong things, right? Some of you know the story of Les Miserables. There's this tragic character named Fantine who has a pattern of putting her trust in the wrong people. First, her boyfriend who gets her in trouble and then abandons her. And then the thinner deers who... Uh, this, uh, this greedy, unscrupulous couple who take advantage of Fantine and her daughter, and they lie and pretend they need more money to take care of uh, her daughter Cosette, and it's really all for their own selfish gain. But there is one character in the story who is worthy of Fantine's trust. Jean Valjean promises Fantine he will take care of Cosette. And he does so at great personal cost. Because we live in a broken, fallen world, surrounded by sinful, deceitful people, we have to be careful who we put our trust in, right? Where did Abraham place his faith? And how does Paul describe the object of Abraham's faith in such a way as to make the connection between Abraham and us? Well, according to verse 17, the God in whom he believed is the God who gives life to the dead. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. We can see Paul is using these words on two levels. Verse 19 reminds us that Abraham's body, speaking of his reproductive capacity, is as good as dead. Hundred-year-old men don't make babies with 90-year-old women. When Abraham believes God's promise that they are going to have a kid, he is trusting in a kind of resurrection. Now, Paul could have described Abraham's faith and he could have described God's power some other way. Why does he use this particular language? Well, he's drawing a connection between what Abraham believed and what we believe. Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead. We believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. That's verse 24. The power of God put on display in the supernatural conception and birth of Isaac is actually pointing prophetically to the day when he would exercise that same power by raising Jesus from the dead. And faith that is placed in that power is never disappointed because the object of the faith is completely trustworthy. And that brings us to another point that Paul wants to make about Abraham's faith. We might ask the question, why does God choose to use faith 
as the instrument of our justification? Does God need our faith to accomplish something that he wants to do? Is he restricted from doing what he wants when we fail to believe? Or does our lack of faith create a roadblock that's too big for him to get over? Well, the role of faith in this passage and everywhere in Scripture is not to give God a boost, like we're helping him achieve something that he can't quite pull off without our help. The point of faith is that it makes a statement about God. That's what Paul says about Abraham in verses 20 and 21. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God places the utmost priority on his own glory. And he can achieve that however he chooses. But the way that he calls us to glorify him is to affirm that he is who he says he is and he does what he says he will do. Verse 22 says, that's why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. God chose to give the gift of righteousness to Abraham in a way that most glorified himself. So faith is not a lever that moves God's power around wherever we want it. God's power is the platform on which faith rests. You put your faith anywhere else and it doesn't work. The purpose purpose of that arrangement is to give glory to God. The ultimate display of God's power, which is addressed in these verses, is the resurrection of Christ. Remember, that's where Paul was headed in this whole discussion about Abraham's faith. In verses 23 and 24, he specifically says, the Genesis passage wasn't written just for Abraham, it's written for us. The same righteousness that was given to Abraham is given to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. But he wants to go a little further describing the saving work of God. And that's what he does at the very end of chapter 4 in verse 25. And this is the second connection that Paul makes, which I want us to pay special attention to this morning. It is the connection between Jesus' resurrection and our justification. The connection between Jesus' resurrection and our justification. He's going to give us the basis of our justification Divided into two parts. First, Christ is delivered up for our trespasses. And second, he is raised for our justification. Now that's interesting why he said it that particular way. We're probably more accustomed to thinking of our justification coming from Christ's death. And that's not wrong. Verse 9 of chapter 5 actually says we're justified by his blood. But what Paul is doing here is breaking the work of salvation into two stages that in in some sense was not complete until Christ was raised from the dead. The first stage is he's delivered up for our trespasses. And we want to ask, okay, what exactly does Paul have in mind? Who delivered him up? So that's a very common word in the Greek New Testament. It just means giving something or giving someone over to someone or something else, handing it or handing him over. It's used frequently in the Gospels to talk about Judas betraying Jesus. He hands him over, delivers him over to the chief priests and scribes. And then the priests and scribes do it again. They hand him over. They deliver him to Pilate. 
Then the word is used again to describe Pilate's action. He delivers him up to be crucified. So is that who Paul has in mind? Judas? The Jewish leaders? Governor Pilate? Well, if he does have them in mind at all, it's not primarily who he has in mind. And we can be pretty certain of that because Paul uses this word five other times in the book of Romans. Only one of those other times is he talking about specifically about Christ being delivered or handed over. And that's in Romans 8, verse 32. And I would say it's a, it's a little unfortunate that our translation that we're using, the ESV, it uses a different English word to translate the same Greek word. It's translated gave in 832, but it's our word delivered in 425. So in 832 it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave or delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who is the one giving up the Son in this context? It's God the Father. Judas, the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, they're not the ones calling the shots. God is the one who gave him over for our trespasses. And from the context of the verses coming up in chapter 5, there are certain conclusions Paul wants us to draw from that fact. Christian brothers and sisters, here is the measure of God's love for you. God's love is put on display in the act of delivering His Son over to be crucified. Do not make the mistake of judging God's love based on the circumstances of your life. You might say, I'm blessed with good health. I'm surrounded by a loving family and wonderful friends. I have a good job that makes it possible to pay for all my needs. Well, those are all wonderful gifts from God that we should be thankful for. But what if he chooses to take those things away? Does it mean he loves you any less? The measure of God's love is not seen in your life circumstances. The measure of God's love is seen at the cross. And we need to see this is not just a sentimental love, it's an effectual love. It accomplishes exactly what God intends to accomplish. So there's a Greek preposition here that Paul uses in both parts of this verse that's a little bit difficult to interpret, but I think the ESV gets the sense by using the English word for. I think the idea is that Christ was delivered up for the purpose of dealing with our trespasses. Our faults, our failures, our offenses, our sins, they don't just bring a lot of problems into our lives, even though they do that. Most fundamentally, they have broken our relationship with God. And God says, this is how I'm going to fix that. This is how I will heal our broken relationship. I will give up my son to pay the atonement price to satisfy my justice for those sins. So if Christ has paid the price of our sins and declared moments before his death, it is finished. Why does Paul say, if we understand him correctly, that it is specifically his resurrection that leads to our justification? Aren't we justified by his death? Yes, we are. 
All the punishment that needed to be paid was inflicted on Jesus in those hours on the cross. But what happened when God raised his son from the dead was that he was announcing his verdict. Sinful men had already given their verdict, what they thought about Jesus, right? He's guilty. He's a criminal. He's a fraud. He's he's an imposter, a blasphemer, and a lawbreaker. And in God's plan, Jesus bore the penalty for every one of those sins. But in the resurrection, God overturned that verdict. He who was counted guilty has triumphed over that sin by his pure, spotless sacrifice. God's courtroom says he is no longer counted guilty. He is declared innocent. He is righteous. He is justified. But that's not exactly what verse 25 says, is it? It actually says his resurrection is for our justification. We are counted righteous because of what happened to Jesus. And we get more of the explanation for that later in chapter 5, where Jesus is presented as the new Adam. He is the representative head of his people. What happens to him happens to those who are united with him. When God declares Jesus righteous, he declares all who are in Christ to be equally righteous. If you are in Christ, the verdict that waits for you on the day of judgment has already been announced in the resurrection of Christ. God was putting it on display for everyone to see. My son is innocent. My son is righteous. My son is vindicated and accepted in my sight. And when we give glory to God by putting our faith in that work, he says the same thing about us. You're innocent. You're righteous. You're vindicated. You're accepted in God's sight. So the connection between Abraham and us gives us the pattern of our justification. And the connection between Christ's resurrection and us gives us the basis of our justification. But that's not the last connection that Paul makes for us in this passage. He's on a trajectory that leads straight into chapter 5. Remember, Paul didn't divide... Uh, this letter into different chapters, he moves right into, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there are certain things that follow from that. And to give you a hint, there's a lot more to it than just information that we use to win theological arguments with Catholics and Mormons. Yes, we contend for the truth of the gospel, but there are real effects that this truth has in our personal lives. So what are those effects? First, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not so much an inner feeling of peace as it is the objective answer to the dire situation described in the first two and a half chapters of this letter. Mankind is at war with God, suppressing and denying the truth that God has revealed in creation. And as a result, God is at war with mankind. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who practice these things. The death and resurrection of Christ is the act of God by which he makes peace with a rebellious humanity. 
So now, what is it like now that that peace has been achieved? Well, verse 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? What is the grace in which we now stand? Well, if we assume that Paul is not just repeating himself here, he is saying that the grace of justification leads to every other grace that belongs to us in our new status of being accepted with God. It's every spiritual blessing poured out on those who are united to Christ. Those blessings will one day come to their culmination when we stand in the visible presence of God and actually see and experience His glory. That's what he calls the hope of the glory of God in verse 2. But he says it in such a way that calls attention to the effect that, the, that this future hope has in our lives right now. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that even suffering is used in God's good purpose to work in our lives and produce things like endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And isn't that interesting? This process he describes of God working in our lives through our sufferings is accompanied by an attitude of rejoicing and hope because the suffering produces qualities that produce more hope. So even if we don't get everything that Paul is saying here, we can feel the atmosphere of this passage vibrate with these two words that Paul repeats, rejoice and hope. Actually, the English word rejoice is probably not strong enough to make Paul's point. In other contexts, this word is sometimes translated boast. It can be sinful, prideful boasting if we're boasting in the wrong things, like ourselves. But if you boast in the right things, like God's grace, it's presented as the norm for the Christian life. It combines the ideas of joy and confidence. It provides the cure for shame and despair. In Paul's flow of thought, this attitude of joyful confidence comes from all the gifts of God's grace which reach their culmination in the experience of God's glory, but which have been secured by our justification accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's our third connection we need to see in this portion of Romans, the connection between justification and joy, or the connection between justification and hope. So I want to ask again the question that I asked at the very beginning. Are you a joyful Christian? Notice, Paul is not commanding us or exhorting us in this passage to be joyful. He's stating it as a matter of fact. If you know that you are justified and have peace with God through the work of Christ, he expects you to rejoice. And if we do not experience this kind of joyful, this confident, hope-filled rejoicing, it's probably appropriate to ask ourselves, why not? So I'm going to make a suggestion. It's one important reason why I believe so many Christians live less than joyful lives. And I'll try to give some examples how this shows itself. But as I do, I want to make it clear the point of this is not to pile guilt on you. The point is to say the gospel offers something so much better. 
So I believe one reason why so many Christians are often dominated by things like fear and shame and depression and anger and frustration, instead of experiencing the joyful life that God intends for them, is because in large measure they still crave all sorts of justification that come from men. Instead of treasuring the justification that comes from God that's found in Jesus Christ. And I'll say that again. One major reason why we don't experience more joy is because we crave all sorts of justification that come from men, including self-justification, instead of treasuring the justification that comes from God. So here's what I have in mind. How often do we seek the feeling of satisfaction that comes from hearing others praise us? We want to hear them say, you're right, you're smart, you're attractive, you're talented, you're hardworking, you're such a good parent, you're such a good Christian. We are desperate for the approval of men. But the gospel offers us something far better. Often the test of how heavily we're invested in the opinions of others is how we react when we don't get the affirmation that we seek. When others perhaps fail to recognize our achievements, they don't seem to notice what we consider our good qualities, we feel disappointed and overlooked. Maybe we fish for compliments. We drop some comments that we hope will draw attention to our comparative righteousness. Why do we do that? Well, we're insecure. We're trying to boost our confidence and find affirmation in the opinions of others. It's a form of self-justification. But the gospel offers us something far better. Another way our self-justification shows itself is how we respond when someone criticizes us or accuses us in some way that we think is unjustified. We we react with indignation and self-righteousness. How dare they attack me like that? We defend our righteousness with every logical argument and every rhetorical weapon we can muster. But the gospel offers us something far, far better. We also show a measure of self-justification when we get angry at God for the suffering that he brings into our lives. I don't deserve this. How can God do this to me? We pit our wills against the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. The gospel offers us something far better. It speaks to us as to a bunch of convicted felons announcing God's pardon. It tells us we are justified by faith in the free gift and powerful work of God. It assures us we have peace with God through the atonement and resurrection of Christ. It promises us the hope of future glory which God has prepared for us. And it holds forth those realities as the basis for joyful confidence today. No matter what trials you may be going through, no matter what sufferings you may experience, he tells us the hope he has given us will not put you to shame.
That's because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. That gives you a reason for joy. Ben is going to come lead us at the Lord's Supper. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.